Now, in this series that we've been going through, we've done two sermons so far. The first sermon, we talked about that Jesus was born to be the Savior. We talked about how that He was the answer to God's promises, that God had promised man all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, that there would come a time when God would send a Savior to restore the relationship that had been broken on that day with Adam and Eve there in the garden. And Jesus, of course, was the fulfillment of that promise. And when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in that manger, such lowly beginnings, He was worshipped, He was feared to the point that Herod had children put to death to try to get rid of Him. He was recognized even as a baby as being the Savior that God had promised. We looked in part two of our series at Jesus as He was growing up. We looked at the story in Luke, the second chapter, where Jesus was about 12 years old. And as His parents were returning home... Uh, from a feast in Jerusalem, Jesus stayed behind and they, of course, went back and searched for him several days and found him there in the temple. And he was sitting there with the doctors or the teachers of the law and they were asking him questions and they were amazed at the understanding that he had. And even at 12 years old, they recognized that there was something special about Jesus. And we talked also in that part about Jesus as he grew up and he turned 30 years old, how that he was baptized by his cousin John the Baptist. God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus then went into the, into the wilderness, the desert area, and Satan tempted him after Jesus had fasted for 40 days. And then when Jesus passed those tests that Satan presented before him, Jesus went, he picked 12 disciples, and he began his ministry. And so in this part three, we're going to talk about Jesus' three-year ministry and some of the things that he did and taught while he walked here on this earth. I want you to know Jesus performed many miracles, and you know this. If you're a student of the Bible, of the New Testament, you know that one of the things that Jesus did, an, ex an example of his power, was that he performed miraculous things that could not have been performed by a simple man. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Jesus had great power, great power that was not recognized. In fact, people were, many people were confused when they saw the things that Jesus could do, and they questioned and they tried to decipher how in the world it was possible for Jesus to do these things, and they came up with different theories. One of those we'll look at in just a moment, but I want us to recognize that Jesus came around and He was healing all manner of diseases and sickness that had to do with both the body, the mind, and the spirit. In verse 24 there of Matthew 4, it says, His fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And we see in this passage, number one, his fame spread. You can imagine why. This is a guy that comes onto the scene after the showing there at his baptism with God's voice saying what it said with Jesus already perhaps having the reputation from his birth, from that story as he was 12 years old, and whatever other information that we simply don't have, he would have already potentially had a reputation, and now he comes onto the scene and he begins performing these miracles. And so, of course, his fame is going to spread. And people are going to be talking about the amazing things that they see, see Jesus do. And some of those things that he did for people, we'll just start at the bottom and work our way up. He healed people's bodies. That palsy there indicates a paralysis this is about the worst, you know, physical malady, I guess, that you could have is the inability to walk or do anything. And he could heal even that. But he didn't just stop with the body. He also healed those who were sick of the mind. That's what that word lunatic means. Now, some people interpret that to mean epilepsy. But most will say that has to do with the mind and a, and a losing of the mind and a recognition that somebody is literally crazy. And Jesus was able to heal that and restore their minds. 
And Jesus also was able to cast out devils from those who were possessed. And that brings us to an important point of the setting that Jesus walked into. As Jesus began his ministry, it was a different world than it is today. The world that Jesus lived in and walked on this earth in was a world where Satan ruled. Yes, God ultimately was still ruler and God was ultimately still in control. But God allowed Satan to rule over the earth for a time. And in the time in which Jesus walked on the earth, Satan's height, his power was at, at its height, if you will. And we see in the New Testament examples of many people that were possessed with spirits. Spirits that could cause these people to do crazy things and to even speak. Spirits that recognized Jesus and spoke through the vessels that they were inhabiting to Jesus. And Jesus cast these spirits out. And I want us to recognize the reason that that's different today and then is because Jesus had not yet conquered Satan and sin. Part of Jesus' purpose in going to the cross eventually was to conquer Satan and take his power. This is why after Jesus died and was resurrected from the grave, he came to his disciples in Matthew 28 and verse 18. And it was at that point that he said to them, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And at that point, Jesus said, Satan is no longer ruler, but all power is mine. And so we recognize the world that we live in, we're ruled by a higher power. We're ruled by Jesus, and the power that is within us is greater than the power that's in the world. But it was a different world. And so people that were used to seeing people possessed with evil spirits, which is not something we're used to seeing, were amazed by the things that Jesus was doing. And some of them even questioned and said, well, maybe he's doing it by the power of Satan. Maybe that's how Jesus is accomplishing this. In Luke 11 and verse 14, it says he was casting out a devil and it was dumb. And it came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake. And the people wondered. But some of them said he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. Beelzebub, simply another name for Satan. And they said he's doing this by the power of Satan. That's the only explanation we can come up with. Well, Jesus responds to them in the next few verses, and that's where he talks about it wouldn't make sense for Satan to be casting out Satan. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And he responds to them in verse 20 after saying it's not through the power of Beelzebub. He says, but if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he used this as an opportunity to teach them that he was not using Satan's power, but he was using a greater power. He came here as the Son of God. He came here with the power of God, bringing the kingdom of God to them. And he says, if I'm doing this through the power of God, which I am, then you better be ready and know the kingdom's about to be here. Because this is what all those Old Testament prophets talked about. And in Matthew chapter 9, I wanted to just go through a few examples of these, uh, of these miraculous things that Jesus did. Just to give you some example of some of the things that he did. And it wasn't just healing, uh, although that was many of them that he did. But he did some other amazing things we'll look at as well. But in Matthew chapter 9, we see a story of a man with palsy. And again, this is paralysis. So this is a man who was unable to walk. And he's there on his bed. And Jesus is speaking with him. And Jesus looks at him and he says, your sins are forgiven you. And when he said that, there were scribes there that thought in their head, didn't say it out loud, but thought in their head, this is blasphemy. He doesn't have the power to forgive sins. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, turned to them and he said, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. And so we recognize that Jesus' first priority and purpose was spiritual, 
to forgive this man of his sins, but he was also concerned with his physical needs as well. And when those people there doubted his ability to forgive sins as a son of God, he essentially said, I'll prove to you that I can. And I'll heal his physical need too. And he did. And this man gets up and he walks. And all the people there that saw that, they, were, they marveled and they glorified God for the things that they had seen. And that's just the kind of thing that Jesus did often. We see another miracle that Jesus performed in Matthew chapter 14. We refer to this as the feeding of the 5,000, though that's really incorrect. This number is based on the number of men that were there listening. If you counted women and children, though we don't know the number, if you assume there was one woman for every man and one child for every couple, that would be 15,000 people. It's possible there was anywhere between 5,000 to 25,000 people. We simply don't know. But the minimum is that there were 5,000 people one day that were following him, listening to his teaching, and they were hungry. It says, And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time has now passed. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart, give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. And so this crowd of people that he was healing and that he was teaching, they're hungry. His disciples say, look, let's send them away. They can go buy themselves some food. They can always come back. And Jesus says, no, we're going to feed them. They said, well, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. That's it. So what does Jesus do? He said, bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and break and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up the fragments that remained 12 baskets full. And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. And so here you have a miraculous story of these thousands of people that are there before Jesus... His disciples say, let's send them away and let them, let them buy some food. Jesus says, no, we're feeding them. They say, well, with what? We have five loaves and two fish. And he says, bring them here. He blesses them. He passes them out. The disciples begin to pass them out to the multitudes. And, and I don't know exactly how this worked, you know, but I imagine as they're, as they're and people are, are grabbing and taking some, and it's just, it keeps refilling. That's how I imagine it happening. I mean, because you get through these throngs of thousands of people, and there's so much food that they take up 12 baskets full of, of leftovers. And it's just, what an amazing thing to witness, that all of these thousands of people could eat and be full. And, and you have to wonder, sitting there and witnessing something like that, how easy it seems like to us, at least to me, how easy it must have been to see something like that and believe. You know, I mean, this is not something you see every day. And what an amazing experience that would have been to witness. Jesus feeding those five to 25,000 people. Jesus did some other amazing things. In Mark chapter 4, verse 36, we see a story where Jesus and his disciples are on a ship. It says, when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind. And the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and saying to him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Recognize the, the song lyrics there. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So here is Jesus sleeping and his disciples are scared to death, literally, that this storm is going to kill them all and they go to Jesus who is asleep and they wake him up and they go, don't you care that we're all about to die? 
And it's like he just looks at them. Don't you know who I am? You're afraid of some wind and some rain? And he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the rain and he says, peace, be still. And when he says that, everything gets calm and the rain stops. The wind stops blowing. The sky is clear. How amazing would it be to see something like that? Well, it was pretty amazing because the people that witnessed it said, what manner of man is this? Who is this guy? That even the wind and the seas, they obey him. Jesus did amazing things. He did those things proving that he was the Son of God. In Matthew chapter 14, there's another amazing story. One of my favorites, verse 24, it says, But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. Now let's stop there for just a moment. Let's not pass over that. Let's not read through that and, and not realize what it just said. Jesus is walking on the sea. That is not something that you see every day. Jesus is walking on water. It says, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. Now that's not necessarily as silly of a thing as we think of it. Remember the setting. Remember Satan's power. Remember, remember evil spirits were witnessed in that time. And they said, It's a spirit. And they were afraid for their lives. It says, but straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Now that seems like a brilliant idea for Peter. It's, it, with the way that you read that, it's like he's still unsure. Well, if it's really you, well, what if it's not, Peter? And you step out of the boat. But nevertheless, he did. And he believed that it was Jesus. And he stepped out of that boat onto the water, and then Peter begins to walk. Now you've got two people... And Peter's just a regular guy walking on water. And he said, come. And Peter was come down out of the ship and he walked on the water to go to Jesus. When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. And they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. And so here we've got Peter challenging him, sort of, or it's an act of faith, however you want to interpret it, saying, if you're really the Lord, let me walk on water. And Jesus grants him the wish. And so you've got both of them walking to water, and he's looking at Jesus, and he's walking toward him. But then it's like the humanity comes back to Peter. And he goes, I'm walking on water. And he gets afraid, and he loses sight of Jesus, and he lacks the faith. He begins to doubt, and so he begins to sink. And Jesus, of course, has to save him. And he brings him into the boat. And notice the people that were there that witnessed this. They didn't just wonder, what manner of man is this? They knew. They said, this, this is the Son of God. We believe him. Because we've never seen anything like that. Never seen anything like that. One more. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. It says, While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. Now, now that's, a, that's a pretty real request. This isn't, you know, miraculously making, making bread and fish multiply. This isn't walking on water or calming the wind and the sea. As amazing as those things are, this is bringing someone who's dead back to life. Now, if anything should be convincing, if anything should let people know that God is real and that Jesus is his son, this would be it. 
And Jesus doesn't back down from this request. In fact, he immediately begins following this man. Now, they get interrupted. You remember by a woman who had an issue of blood for, with 12 years. She touches the hem of Jesus' garment. And so he deals with her for a little while. And then he makes his way to the ruler's house. It says, And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, he said unto them, Give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when the people were put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose. Now he goes into this house where this girl had already died and the people there that were with her, they knew she was dead. They knew what dead looked like. They, they, they knew what dead was. She was dead. And Jesus comes in and says, she's just asleep. And they laughed at him, as you and I probably would. Jesus, we know what dead is. She's not asleep. But he moved them out of the way and he went to her and he grabbed her hand and she was alive by the power of God. And Jesus did all of these miraculous and amazing things to point back to God and to get people to glorify God and to recognize that He was the Son of God and the Word of God made flesh. You see, what He did with all these miracles was He proved who He was and provided credibility for the things that He taught. The miracles proved that He was the Son of God. Matthew 15 and verse 30, great multitudes came unto him, having with him those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to behold, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. And that's what Jesus was trying to do, was to get people to glorify God. John tells us in John 20 and verse 30, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. You know why John records so many of the miracles and wonderful things that Jesus did? Because just like they were proof in that day that he was the Son of God, they can be proof to us that Jesus really is the Son of God. And we can recognize that no ordinary person has that power. That wasn't the power of Satan. That was the power of God. That part of God that he made flesh to dwell with man that we call his son Jesus. Jesus was truly the son of God. And Jesus did these miracles in part to prove who he was. And second, to prove his dominion over the current ruler of that world, Satan. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, there's an interesting scripture there. And it comes right after verse 14 that talks about blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us. In verse 15 it says, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Those principalities and powers, those are Satan's evil ranks of, of spiritual, if you want to call them demons or evil spirits or fallen angels or whatever term you want to give them, those are Satan's uh, minions, if you will. Those are those principalities and powers. And it says Jesus made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Everything that Jesus did proved that he was from God. He triumphed over Satan and his spirits. He triumphed over all of the powers of evil and wickedness. And ultimately at the cross, he crushed Satan's power. And so it gave, these things gave Jesus that credibility to show that the people needed to listen to what he was saying. And that brings us to the second part of our message tonight. Jesus taught a new law. He had the credibility because 
he proved through these miraculous deeds that he was the Son of God. And so when Jesus opened his mouth, he spoke not as a scribe, not as one who just simply read the law, but he spoke as one who had authority, and people listened, and they recognized that. And they knew because there was something special about him, because he had that power from God, that they ought to listen to the law, to the message that he was bringing them. And I want us to think about just a few things that Jesus came teaching. And obviously we can't cover everything that Jesus taught, but I want to bring your attention to a few things. Jesus came teaching that he was replacing the old law with a new law, not destroying it, but fulfilling it. In Matthew 5, verse 17, it says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth shall pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. And so Jesus came saying that old law, that old covenant that God made with Moses and the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, 1,500 years ago, that law is about to be fulfilled and there is a new law, a new covenant, a new testament that is about to be implemented by Jesus. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10, Paul, or or the writer of the book here, uh, tells us some things about that old law and that new law. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10, he is quoting out of the book of Jeremiah chapter 31, there in about verse 33. And the writer here says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Now, God, through Jeremiah, had prophesied that there was going to come a day when a new covenant was made with mankind. And it was not going to be like the old covenant with the law of Moses, but it was going to be a new kind of covenant that was written on the hearts of mankind. And then we see in verse 13 of this same chapter, He says, in that he saith, a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now this is the writer of Hebrews explaining what Jeremiah was saying in Jeremiah chapter 31. So don't be confused. Many people read this and they say, well, why would the writer of Hebrews be saying the old law is ready to vanish away? If Jesus has already died, the old law has already been fulfilled and we're already in the new law. He's not saying that. He's saying that's what Jeremiah was saying in that he saith... A new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which is decayeth and waxeth old, waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Jeremiah was saying it's ready to vanish away. And we see in Jesus that it did. And it was fulfilled and that new law was brought forth. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 and 25, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So I want us to recognize that as Jesus was coming and he was teaching Jews that were under the old law, that knew the law of Moses, that was what their experience was. He was saying it's going to be different. There's a new covenant that's being made with mankind. And it's what Jeremiah prophesied about in Jeremiah 31. Jesus connected the idea of this new covenant and this new, new testament with a kingdom that was going to be established. Now we've talked in this series already about that kingdom. Daniel chapter 2 verse 44 as Daniel is there with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had that dream of the statue, if you remember, made of the four different metals that represented the succession of four kingdoms. And in that fourth kingdom, which we know to be Rome, Daniel said in verse 44, it's in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven establish a kingdom that would never be destroyed. And so we know those Old Testament passages prophesied of a kingdom that would come in conjunction with that new covenant, that new testament that God was going to make with mankind. And Jesus came preaching about that kingdom. In Matthew 4 and verse 17, it says, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, at hand means near, drawing near, about to be here. People recognize what Jesus was saying is the kingdom is near. But this was a different kind of kingdom. 
Remember, this kingdom was not a kingdom built on any kind of geography. This was not a kingdom only open to people of certain bloodlines or certain ethnicities, certain cultures. No, this was a different kind of kingdom. Jesus said in John chapter 18, there in about verse 36, as he's talking to Pilate, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from hence. He says, my kingdom's not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. We know in Matthew chapter 16, there in about verse 18, Jesus uses the word church and kingdom interchangeably. As he's talking to Peter and he's just asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. That rock not being Peter, but being the confession that Peter just made. He said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I shall give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he uses that word church and kingdom interchangeably. And we recognize that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is his church. It is his group of people It is those people who have agreed to the new covenant that God was making with mankind, who have allowed that covenant to be written on their hearts, who have given themselves to Jesus as the Son of God, are members of that kingdom, that church. And that's what Jesus came preaching. And when these Jews were hearing those words, they would go back to those old prophecies like Daniel 2 and verse 44 and recognize that that's the kingdom that Jesus was talking about though they still believed and hoped that it would be a physical kingdom and that Jesus would rule on a physical throne and help them to overthrow Rome, which of course was never in God or Jesus' plan. I want you to also recognize the time frame of when, a time frame of when this kingdom did come. Jesus is standing there preaching to a crowd of people and he said unto them, Verily I say unto you that there are some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And I remind you of the simple truth that this passage teaches. This leaves essentially two options. One, the kingdom came while those people were still alive, like Jesus said it would. Or, unless Jesus is a liar, there are 2,000-year-old people walking around. And which one is easier for you to believe? I've never seen anybody that old. Seen some old people. Everybody, never anybody that old. 2,000-year-old people or the kingdom's already here. Which one's easier to believe? The kingdom's not still coming... This was a message Jesus was preaching, and he said it's at hand. He said it's about to be here. And so we just need to recognize the simple truth. The kingdom of God is here. It's in existence. That new covenant was made with mankind on that day when Jesus died on that cross, and that kingdom was brought into existence. And we see the start of that in Acts chapter 2. Jesus, in addition to teaching about the new covenant, about the kingdom that was coming, he taught a new standard for that kingdom, for that church, for that group of people that would give themselves to him. He taught them a new way that they ought to live and to think and to worship. In Matthew chapter 15, 7 and 8, he said, Ye hypocrites, ye uh, well did Isaiah the prophet, <laughs> prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And I just want us to recognize Jesus pointed out the hypocrisy of the worship and the standard that these people were living under when he said, you're giving me lip service, but your heart's not here. And what Jesus is teaching in his new moral standard is a standard of the heart. And that new covenant, remember, Jeremiah prophesied that that covenant would be written on the hearts of mankind. There's another passage there in Luke chapter 17, 20 and 21, related to the kingdom, where Jesus said, the kingdom cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for the kingdom of God is within you. 
And all of these teachings, all of these things that Jesus is teaching, it points to the heart of mankind. It points to the heart of men and women. And that's the nature of the kingdom is those who will give their heart over to God. And that's what he wanted. And that's what Jesus came teaching against. You're giving me lip service, but your heart's not, not, not for me. He says, I want your heart. And that new standard that Jesus teaches, it really all boils down to having a heart that says, I'm going to submit to the will of Jesus as the Son of God, and I'm going to be a part of His kingdom. Therefore, I'm going to do what He tells me to do. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 39. We call this sermon here between Matthew 5 and Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And in these passages, Jesus says, You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now I just want us to recognize here as he's teaching these people, teaching the new standard for this new kingdom and this new covenant that God is making with mankind, he compares and contrasts it with that that they are used to. And he says, you've heard an eye for an eye. That's in the old law, the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy both reference this idea of an eye for an eye. If you kill my... Uh, cow, I can kill your cow. I mean, it's an eye for an eye. It's fair, right? And Jesus says, that's not how we're going to live anymore. I want you to have a heart of forgiveness. If someone smites you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This goes to the heart. It's not all about justice, not all about an eye for an eye getting revenge, but it's about having a heart of forgiveness and saying, I'm going to turn the other side, turn the other cheek, and I'm going to forgive you for what you've done. That's the new standard that Jesus has taught. A little uh, bit later here in the same chapter, he says, You've heard that it's been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now that's not necessarily in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament is, Thou shalt love thy neighbor. And it seems that the Jews have extrapolated out the rest of that. As if, well, if God has told us we have to love our neighbor, though, then that ought to mean we can hate our enemy. And Jesus is saying, No, but I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. How hard is that? Somebody that is, that is rude to you, that is mean to you, that is actually hurtful to you, whether physically or emotionally, mentally, whatever it may be, to pray for them, to think good things about them, to want the best for them, that takes something different. That's a different kind of standard. And so he compares it with that, that they understood at the time, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. And he says, no, I want you to love your enemy. And again... That goes back to the heart. Having a heart that says, I love Jesus, therefore I will love my enemy. Because that's what Jesus has asked me to do. And only the transformation that takes place when you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you submit your will to Him, only the transformation that takes place there can really allow us to do that. And then he goes on in, or I guess, previous verses, he says this. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. This goes straight back to the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You've heard that you shouldn't commit adultery. Well, that's true. He said, I'm not changing that. But I am going to up the ante. Not only are you not to commit adultery, I don't even want you to think about committing adultery. I don't want you to look at somebody with lustful intent. Now recognize what that's not saying. It doesn't mean that you can't ever see anybody and have a, a, a thought pass through your brain that they're mildly attractive. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he's saying that you're looking at them, intentionally saying, I'm going to lust after them. I'm going to imagine what it would be like to be with them. I'm going to imagine in my mind what it would be like to commit adultery on my spouse. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to go there in your mind. 
Oh, you feel good about yourself because you've not actually done it physically? He says, don't do it mentally. It's a new standard. And it goes back to the heart. And if we have a heart that says, I'm going to submit to Jesus, I'm going to submit to God's will, and that means not only am I going to love my enemies, not only am I going to forgive and I'm going to turn the other cheek, but I'm going to make sure the actions of not only my body but my mind, my very thoughts, conform to His will. That I'm going to seek righteousness from inside out. And that's just different. That's just new to what the old law had within it. And this is the new covenant. This is the new kingdom that Jesus was establishing. This was the new standard that Jesus had for His people. And it was a great high standard that Jesus has called us to. Jesus also taught us the plan of salvation that God had for mankind. And I want us to recognize these passages that I'm about to read. These are passages Jesus himself taught. So we can't go to the excuse that, well, that was, that was you know, Paul. No, this is Jesus. This is actually the words of Jesus in teaching these things. If we're going to listen to him when he taught that his kingdom was about to be established... That he was building this church, this congregation of people in that kingdom that were made up of those who had given them his heart. Well, how do we give him our heart? How do we submit to his will? Well, Jesus says, you've got to believe in me. And remember, that's what he came to do, to prove that he was the son of God. He says, we've got to believe that he is. In John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said, if you want everlasting life, if you want salvation, if you want to be a part of that new kingdom that I'm establishing, if you want to make that covenant, that new covenant with God and be a part of that and have your sins forgiven, you've got to believe that I'm the Son of God. But not only believe that, you've got to be willing to confess that. And this confession is not confessing sin and it's not even a one-time confession. I recognize that we do the one-time confession and we, we see that in Acts chapter 8. And and that's important to do. But really this confession is not a one-time confession. It's a life of confession. Just like it's a life of belief. It's not a one-time belief. It's not a one-time confession. We ought to be willing through our whole life to go about our business saying and being willing to say, I confess that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Matthew 10, 32. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Jesus said those words. Jesus said, if you're not willing to not only believe in me, but live your life claiming you believe in me, then I'll deny you before the Father. But he says, if you'll do that, I'll confess you before the Father. But that's not all Jesus taught. Jesus taught in Luke 13, 3, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Remember, one of the things that John the Baptist came teaching and that Jesus also came teaching was repentance. The need to change. That new standard Jesus was teaching was that that new standard that we have to submit to. So our old way may have been to seek revenge when someone does something to us. The old way may have been, as long as we don't do it physically, we can think it and that's fine. But Jesus is saying you've got to change that. Repentance. It's putting away the things of sin and it's putting on the things of righteousness that Jesus teaches. And this is not a one-time thing either. Just like the belief is a lifelong belief and the confession is a willingness to confess in your life, repentance is a lifelong process as well to keep that heart of change, that decision to change. We can't go back and then turn back to sin. We've got to continue that life of repentance. But that's not all that Jesus taught either. He taught that we had to be baptized. 
In Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 16, 15 and 16, he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Now I just want us to recognize and make sure we know these are the words of Jesus when he says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Somebody says, Yeah, but Timothy, it doesn't say you'll be damned if you're not baptized. Well, that's true, it does not. But tell me, does it even make sense for him to say that? If you are only going to be baptized if you believe, right? Because that's the logical next step. If you believe and then you're obeying by being baptized, if you don't believe, why would baptism be an issue? Who's going to not believe and be baptized? That makes no sense, does it? There's no need for him to say that. If you don't believe, you're already condemned. It doesn't matter if you're baptized or not. But if you believe and you're baptized, you'll be saved. That's the words of Jesus. So as Jesus has gained credibility through his miracles and the things that he did, and then he is teaching these new things about the new covenant God is making with man, the kingdom that he's establishing that he will be king and ruler of, the new standard for his people that goes to the heart and submitting our heart to the will of God and of Jesus, and this plan of salvation that Jesus taught. We ought to be very, very aware of the things that Jesus intends for us to do. For if we want the benefits of salvation, if we want the forgiveness of sin that comes with this new covenant, if we want to be a part of that kingdom of Jesus Christ, of whom are going to be the ones who make it to heaven one day, then we've got to follow the plan that Jesus himself instituted. When he said, if you want to be a part of that, you've got to believe in me. You've got to confess your belief. You've got to repent of your sins. Change your heart and submit it to me. And then be baptized and have your sins washed away. And of course, there's many other baptism scriptures we could look at in the New Testament. But just recognize these are the words of Jesus. And this is the one element here that Jesus asks us to do one time. And that one time, all of these other things come together. Our belief, our confession, our repentance, our submission to the will of God... It all comes together in baptism. And when we submit and we're buried in that water, then God performs that work on us and washes our sins away. And from that point on, we don't have to be baptized every day or every hour or every second. But we do have to keep believing. We do have to keep repenting. We do have to keep confessing. And we keep our hearts submitted to him. And if we find ourselves straying and we find ourselves going back to our old, our old ways, we renew that heart of repentance. And we change again and we come back. And that's the plan that Jesus has instituted to allow us to be a part of his great spiritual and eternal kingdom that will last forever. Matthew chapter 7 verse 28, I want you to know that Jesus wants you to accept his message. Jesus came as the word of God, John chapter 1 says. He was the word of God made flesh. He brought God's message to the world. You have heard that message tonight. We've not covered everything that we could cover. It would be impossible to do that in one sermon. But we've covered that basic message that Jesus brought. Which was he was instituting his kingdom. And a new standard. And a way to be saved. To have our relationship with God reconciled. And he wants you to hear that. And to accept that. It says, it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority. Jesus had authority then, and they recognized it, and the words of Jesus have authority today, and I hope you recognize it. I hope you recognize these aren't my words, 
And even though we could quote the Apostle Paul and Peter and any of these other New Testament writers to back up the points that are made, what I've done here is only quote the words of Jesus. Jesus himself has brought this message to you and he's asking for you to listen. 1 Timothy 2 verse 3 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what God wants for you tonight. 